Okay, friends, invite you to turn in your Bibles. Invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and into Acts chapter 4. As we continue our, our series on who we are, um, we're looking at the doctrine of the early church, and we're uh, not just looking at that for our own entertainment or amusement or interest. We're looking at what the teaching about the, the Bible has to say about the, the church, and we're taking that seriously. We want to discover what it is that we need to, to do and be, the types of uh, Christians we need to be. Um, individually, but also in particular collectively as the church. And so we've looked at the practices of the church. We've, um, and we're basing a lot of this early few weeks of this teaching on um, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. And originally I had said like this was going to be six or seven weeks. And um, I suspect, I, so, I suspect many of you probably think this, many, many of you probably think, oh no, this is not. This is going to be longer than that. I've already had some people go, yeah, yeah. We're going like a verse at a time. How is this going to be like six or seven weeks? Uh, it will be. We're going to go a lot quickly, uh, a lot more quickly, quicklier, Rosie, faster, quicker, a lot quicker um, here in the next couple weeks. Um, and so I'm just calling people out to help me with my grammar here. So, uh, and so we've looked at a. Uh, we're looking at the spirit-filled, Christ-centered. Church, and we have seen that uh, spirit-filled, Christ-centered church. Now, the spirit-filled and Christ-centered is based on the idea of the Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit coming on Pentecost, the event of it, and then Peter's explanation of it is that hey, this all fulfills what the Scripture was saying about Jesus, and so that there's the coming of the Holy Spirit and this preaching of this message of this gospel or this combination of word and spirit. And at the end of that, you have this description of the church. And so the word of God and the spirit of God produce the church of God. And so um, we're going to uh, continue looking at this spirit-filled church, the spirit-filled Christ-centered community as they were, they're devoted, they're devoted to the scriptures. So they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. They were devoted to one another, which is the fellowship, which we looked at uh, last week. And so today I want us to look at the next thing that we, they were devoted to. And so if you would um, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And Acts chapter 4, 32 through 35. We'll stop there. So Acts chapter 2, and these are just two summary descriptions of the life of the church um, in the early decades after Jesus or early years after Jesus ascended into heaven. So we'll read this, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into the rest of the teaching today. So Acts chapter two, and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were 
being saved. Now Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And this is the reading of God's word. You say, thanks be to God. God, we, um, we've prayed for you to uh, illuminate our hearts and minds. And God, we do so again. We thank you for your word that you've given us. And may we receive it for what it, it is. It's the, the, your very words given to us for our, for our blessing, for um, our edification to build us up and so uh, god help us to receive it for what it is we ask you do this uh, this morning in christ's name amen so we've looked at a spirit-filled christ-centered community is devoted devoted to scripture is devoted to one another and that we looked at this word fellowship and koinonia last week and there's a, a it's Background to that term is participation or to have things in common. And so the next thing that they were devoted to is related to that, which actually is quite a theme in the passages that we just read. And that is that they were devoted to generosity. They were devoted to generosity. Look again at a couple of these verses. Chapter 2, verses 42, 44 and 45. Um, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Chapter 4, verse 32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. There, there's again that word common. It's related to that word koinonia and fellowship. Verse 34, there, were, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. The early church was generous. The early church was generous with their material resources. Uh, now, a little personal side story. Um, I years ago, about 20 years ago or so, I was involved. Uh, I was a part of, on staff at a pretty large church in the Chicago area, in a pretty affluent area of Chicago. I was a junior high ministry pastor, and uh, I really enjoyed working there and loved what I was was doing there. Um, that particular church was very seeker church, seeker oriented. Um, and they were growing pretty fast. And as a matter of fact, we're needing we're growing so fast that they kind of always were in a perpetual state of building campaign. Uh, it was pretty, uh, a very interesting and fascinating thing. And the thing that I remember probably the most about um, the main teaching pastor and the senior pastor there is that he gave a sermon on tithing every two to three months. He talked about giving every two to three months in the three and a half years or so I was there. 
And sometimes we'll do an entire series on it. And so I heard sermon after sermon after sermon on giving and tithing. And, um, I, and I remember thinking back then, um, I don't ever want to ever give a sermon on tithing or giving. I remember I said, I resolved, I said, you know what, if I ever was going to, to preach uh, and be the main preacher somewhere, I was never going to talk about giving. I actually kind of thought, let's just leave that to the Holy Spirit and God's word and people would be convicted of that. And I resolved never to do that. And I don't think, to, to my recollection, I don't think I ever have here. Maybe I have. I don't think I ever have here. Um, and so the naive part of saying something like that is that if I resolve to just teach the Bible, well, then I'm going to teach about giving. Because the Bible actually talks about giving. And so, um, so it was a good warning to not say, yeah, I don't want to preach about giving every two or three uh, months. But in reality, the scripture does teach us about the early church and about giving and about being generous. And that's what we see in this passage in particular. We see a church that was generous and that gave and gave sacrificially. And so I want to look at this passage and kind of explore this idea a little bit in uh, in detail. This next uh, this remaining moments that we have. But I want to begin with this with a question here. Did Jesus preach socialism? Or was the early church socialist? OK, some people kind of got a little uncomfortable here. Like, <laughs> was Jesus a socialist? Oh, no, here it comes again. I don't know if many of you are following on like social media or the news or anything, uh, but the debate in our country back and forth, especially between the you know the political parties and among the the um, the candidates for president, in particular one party, who are avowedly socialist, and usually um, and the interactions that I've seen online around this issue, um, the comeback is well, if you're a Christian. You should be for socialism because Jesus preached socialism. How many of you heard this? Facebook, back and forth. There's always that family member, the one that posts something about socialism and it shows up in your feed and your blood pressure goes up or, you know, things like that. I did a little search on Twitter about this and it was amazing how many how many uh, tweets, how many posts there were that people just kind of flatly state you should support socialism because Jesus taught socialism in the early church, uh, practiced socialism. They would say Jesus is a socialist. Some would say Jesus discovered socialism, like as if Karl Marx predated Jesus um, and that Jesus preached it. And many today see Jesus as like a political revolutionary. They just kind of see his... Uh, his whole ministry is being uh, political. Well, what is socialism? It might be helpful to kind of define that here. If you're talking about helping the poor, giving of yourself to help those who are hungry and those kind of things, um, that's what maybe some people think is socialism. That's not quite the term of socialism. I saw an interview on the street per interview with, with somebody, and they were asking him, do you like socialism? How do you think about socialism? And one, oh, poor lady, she was like, yeah, I love socialism. I mean, we're socializing right now. And it's like, oh, that's not, that's not socialism. Um, and it's not fellowship. I mean, maybe it's friendship. It's being social. 
Um, let me give a kind of a definition of kind of the prevailing term or meaning of socialism here. And this is kind of my definition I've kind of gleaned from a couple of different sources. Socialism is where leaders or elites of a society act as the central planning power over the economy. They seek to own or control the means of production and to ensure economic equality and that usually comes through wealth distribution so you take it all and you distribute it back and that's done by a group of central planners um, among the elites of society so that's that's kind of does that sound familiar to so okay that so let's use that kind of as this idea the modern notion here of of socialism because the question is was jesus a socialist and it kind of, you, you kind of would think maybe you could get a little bit of that from the passage that we just read. There was talking about this common ownership or this communal ownership. All had everything in common, you know, that kind of thing. Or no individual belongings. There was no such thing as personal property in the early church. Notice in verse 45 of chapter 2, where it says, and they were selling their goods and Possession, belongings, possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds at, at has need. So that comes into the next part there. This distribution and that there was nobody in need. I think some people have pointed to this passage and said, see, Jesus preached socialism and the early church practiced socialism. However, based on the definition of socialism that we have kind of just spelled out a little bit here, um, I think if we were to ask this question, did Jesus preach socialism? Was Jesus a socialist? Was the early church socialist? Um, I would say um, on the whole council of scripture that he was not. It's not saying he was a, a rabid capitalist, but he just recognized that there were truths to capitalism. I think that are just kind of fundamental truths. And what Jesus taught uh, was not socialism as what is being advocated today. And I guess there's a couple of reasons, and I wish I could get into this in greater detail, but um, there's uh, uh, several stories uh, in the gospel accounts, for instance. Luke chapter uh, 12 talks about an account where uh, a person comes up to Jesus and says, Master, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, probably what's going on here is that this most likely was the younger brother, because in those days, the oldest son would get a slightly larger share of the inheritance, and then it would, you know, kind of go down for the other siblings. So it doesn't say that he's the youngest, but you could gather from the background and the culture that he was probably the youngest brother. And so the so he wasn't getting the same that his older brother was getting. And so he comes to Jesus and perhaps he heard something in Jesus' teaching that goes, Ah, Jesus, you're about fairness or inequality. You need to tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. Break this cultural Old Testament Jewish norm about the older getting a little more and just split it in half. Come on, you're with me. To which Jesus said, Uh-uh. No. And he confronts the, the man on the greed in his heart. If Jesus was against um, disparity in giving or income, or if Jesus was all about wealth distribution, uh, his reprimand of that 
person wouldn't make any sense. Or what about the, the parable of the talents? Where you have a master who has uh, hired servants and he sends those servants out and he gives them money and he expects them to go and come back with a return and profit. And he commends the ones who bring back a, a profit commensurate with what they were given to invest. And he commends the one and he commends the second one. And the last one didn't engage in this kind of activity, didn't kind of engage into the market and increase the wealth. And the master reprimands that servant for not being faithful for what he was given. Now, Jesus's point is on being faithful with what is given, but he uses this economic generation and stuff like that as foundational to what he was teaching. If he was against operating according to market forces and uh, uh, producing a profit, he certainly wouldn't have been using this. There's another example of the parable of the workers where Jesus goes and hires uh, workers at the beginning of the day and he agrees to a, a price for their work for that day and then as he's getting close he realizes he's not going to get done with the what he needs to produce so he hires some more guys and he agrees to them for their like market terms and market prices which is the same price it's just with less hours until the last guys come and he hires them to work he gives them a whole day's worth of wage for one hour of work and when G, uh, when this the, the uh, servant or the, the owner in this parable is divvying out the money. The ones at the beginning were like, wait a second. Why did you give them a higher rate, an hourly rate than you gave us? And Jesus says through this, uh, this owner, hey, didn't we agree to that term? And to those in the middle hour, didn't we agree to that term? They, these, were, these were market rates here. You agreed to work according to these things. You weren't coerced, coerced to take that amount. Elsewhere in the Bible, you see um, this principle taught in, in 1 Timothy 5, for instance. And you've heard me talk about this word subsidiarity, right? Which is the smallest government and governmental decisions should be done by the smallest of, uh, able unit called subsidiarity it's not a biblical term but the concept is there where paul is writing to timothy and he's talking about how uh, distribution of helping the poor and needy in the church is to take place and he says here are the people that you can have on the church rolls and actually here's some people that should not be on the church rolls they should not be a part of the giving uh, the benevolence of the church and he gives a neat reason why he because because they have family and the family members have the primary responsibility to carry for the family members, the smallest local unit. And he goes, and if you have some widows or, um, that, that don't have family or don't have children, that's when the church comes in. You see the idea of subsidiary, the smallest group is to take care of the smallest group until they can't. And then it becomes an obligation uh, outward. So that kind of negates this idea of one large central planning thing done by the elites. So I would say on the balance, looking at all of scripture, that it doesn't teach that Jesus preached socialism, that Jesus did not preach socialism, that the church didn't pr practice collectivism, because first of all, it's the church, not the government. 
The church didn't extract those funds through coercion from everyone. It was completely voluntary. As a matter of fact, you have evidence of that right in the very passage that we're dealing with. Look at Acts chapter 4, that passage in Acts chapter 4 again. Where it talks about there was being no needing uh, persons among them. As many who were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. They did this voluntarily. They didn't have to do this. He gives an example at the end of chapter 5 of Joseph, who they call Barnabas. And Barnabas sold a field and, uh, that belonged to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. What's unfortunate in our Bibles here is that they didn't have originally have chapter and verse divisions. So sometimes we stop at chapter 5 and we realize what happens in chapter 5 is based on what uh, Joseph did at the very end of this, of chapter 4. So you have Joseph who had a field that belonged to him, brought the, sold it, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet, and then in verse uh, one of chapter five, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles feet. Now, even here, sometimes it said, see, they uh, and you, for those of us who know the story, it doesn't go well for Ananias and Sapphira. The Lord actually strikes them dead here, as we'll see in a moment. And some will say they didn't give. They didn't give their whole property that they, they sold. It was by coercion that some, some would say. That's not what this passage teaches. It teaches actually quite the opposite. Look at what Peter says in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Notice what he's saying there. You didn't have to sell this property. And if you sold it, if you wanted to, you didn't have to give the money. So what's this deed that he contrived in his heart? If you look at the whole context, you get quite a clear picture. Ananias and Sapphira thought, ah, let's tell them we'll sell the whole property for this amount. And then when they show up, they offer a small portion of it and presenting it as if that was the whole amount. And they kept some for themselves. So in other words, they lied. They were lying about how much they were actually giving. This is the, the deed that they are, this evil deed that they had contrived. In other words, they wanted to look like Barnabas, uh, but to keep a cut on the side. And Peter said, you didn't have to give any. That was your, that was your money. That was your field, your money. So did Jesus preach socialism did the early church practice socialism i would say on the balance of what the entire new testament teaches jesus did not preach socialism the early church did not practice socialism okay everybody could take a sigh of relief oh, right 
However, you knew there was going to be a however, though. However, a spirit-filled, Christ-centered community is devoted to giving and is devoted to generosity. Is devoted to giving and is devoted to generosity. Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 don't teach socialism, but it sure does teach the importance about, as a result of the spirit-filled, work, Christ-centered announcement of the gospel results in gratitude to God and it results in a reorienting of our giving out of generosity and gratitude. And so in this way, it's in this way that giving is really an essential part of the, the Christian life. So a couple of questions, a couple of frequently asked questions related to this. So are Christians required to give a tithe or 10%? Now here's the debate back and forth. We don't have time for me to kind of flesh out the debate uh, back and forth. There are good um, uh, there are good, solid, orthodox Christians who say, yes, the Christian is obligated to give a tithe because that is in the Old Testament. We should follow the Old Testament standard. It's in the it's in the law of Moses, but they would say it actually even predates Moses. You get an example of it from from Abraham and those kinds of things. And that Jesus even talked about giving a tenth and affirming that in the Gospels. Okay, so there's some that would affirm this. And I see the arguments for that. There are some that argue against the New Testament saying that it requires giving 10% on Christians. And they would say that with the coming of the new covenant, the Mosaic law was, uh, was, um, was fulfilled. That they operate by a totally different standard in the New Testament. And this is by spirit-motivated generosity. I tend to lean toward this side. I would tend to lead toward the, not the affirmative here, that some would say, yes, you should be. Christians are required to give a tithe. I would say, well, what do you mean by required? And, and what do you mean by tithe? What is meant there? And I would say, largely, I would say that, um, that Christians are not obligated to give a tenth. Um, but I would say, it's pretty clear in the New Testament that Christians should and do give. The Bible suggests that um, it is a spirit-motivated generosity based on a response of gratitude for the grace that we have received because of what Christ has done for us. So I would land on, on that side of the argument. Are Christians obligated to give a tithe or, or 10% based on the Old Testament? By the way, in the Old Testament, they talked about giving a tenth at harvest time, but there were multiple uh, offerings that were taken. And uh, many Old Testament scholars say actually what, what the Israelites were expected to give was more like 22 to 23%. Just throw that out there. <laughs> hey, we should tithe like in the Old Testament. Okay, that's like 22 or 23%. So that's one question that's usually asked. Uh, here's another question that I'm, I'm usually uh, asked or I've heard asked. Um, I give to other organizations, other Christian organizations, instead of my local church. 
Is that okay? And at he- issue here is the idea that uh, the most important thing is that I give personally. And that it doesn't matter exactly where it goes as long as it's a reputable organization and those kinds of things. And so they, some will not give to their local church and will substitute kind of giving to a, to a local church with giving to other Christian organizations. My answer to this, and this is something that, um, that has evolved in my 30-some years of being a Christian. I would have originally said, um, can you give to other organizations instead of giving to the local church? Earlier, I would have said, well, yeah, I guess so, as long as you're giving. My answer now is, from the scripture, is no, you really shouldn't. Your primary giving should be given to your local church. And again, this follows this idea of the subsidiarity that's that's taught in the New Testament. Actually, your primary giving should be in case family emergency, meeting family needs of other family members. That's your primary means of giving. The second, then, should be in your local church, in your local congregation, and then to other Christians or other Christian organizations and then to the poor and needy. Okay? A Christian should be a part of a local church community, and his or her primary giving, apart from the needs of relatives, special needs of relatives, should be directed to that church. Christians should be a part of a local church community and his or her primary given should be directed to that church. Now, if I could give some biblical examples for this or some biblical basis for this. And this is always tricky because, again, this is in the New Testament. And I'm obligated to teach this, but it's a really awkward thing to talk about because it's talking about. Um, this, it could come across as self, uh, self-serving. Please understand my heart. This is not self-serving. But I just want to teach this, okay? Because it's in here. And we'll look at a couple of passages. First of all, Paul writes to Timothy. And he's writing to Timothy, who's an elder of a church. And he's talking about the elders of the church and how the church should be run. And he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Okay? Now, what does double honor mean here? Here, I think the idea behind this term double honor is related to compensation, as the next two examples that he gives um, reveal. He says, for the scripture says, and this is always fascinating because it says the scripture, and then he quotes two passages. One an Old Testament passage, one a New Testament passage. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. This is Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And, and here's the New Testament passage, the laborer deserves his wages. This is when Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. He says, don't take a money bag with you or anything. When you go... You're going to be paid by the churches or by the synagogues or the homes and stuff in which you go. Okay. So here in this context, he says this is related to elders who labor in preaching and teaching. And this double honor means compensation. 
And so here, then you have the preachers and teachers in a local congregation who are elders of that con uh, congregation are to receive monetary compensation from that local congregation. Okay. Now, my point is to say this is why local congregations have to give to their local church. Just as an ox labors for the grain or the laborer receives his wages, so too here. Here's a second passage. First Corinthians chapter 9. Paul writing to the Corinthians. And here the context is uh, the church is, uh, this is a church that Paul had planted. And now their other apostles have come in and they maybe kind of talked bad about Paul. And so now there's kind of this uh, denial of Paul being an authoritative apostle here. And so he's writing back to kind of correct these divisions that are happening here. And uh, it, he said it makes some very interesting, um, interesting argument here. Notice he says, do we not have the right or the authority to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas here? Cephas being the Aramaic name for Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. Here he's talking about the compensation that he would be receiving. And the argument here is, well, don't pay Paul. He's not an authoritative apostle. And Paul's going, wait a second. I'm an apostle, as he argues throughout the book. And don't I, and he uses this word of right or authority. Don't I have this right or authority to be just like these other guys? The other guys receive compensation from the churches of which they are uh, under overseeing is that not also true for me he's arguing that principle he continues on with a couple of analogies here who serves as a soldier at his own expense who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk right so paul paul is arguing here this is this works everywhere Everyday illustrations. And then he goes from everyday occupations. And then he goes, and by the way, I'm not saying this on my own authority. He goes, verse eight, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? And then he quotes again, what he did in first Timothy five, for is it not written in the law of Moses? You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And he asks this great question. Is it just for oxen that God is concerned? Doesn't this apply you know, like, really? God is just concerned about oxen, or is this the principle that's laid out there? He continues on. Verse 10 and 11. Does not he speak certainly for our sake? And he answers, it is written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And here's the kicker. Here's the principle. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? Paul says something very similar to the Galatians in a very shorter way that encapsulates that principle of that verse, verse 11 there. When he says, let the one... Talking about how things are conducted in the church there. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches the word. Or if 
the one who is teaching spiritual things among you, should they not reap material things from you? And again, this may seem like this is self-serving. It could have made that accusation to Paul. Do we not have a right to get these things? The Galatians could have made that accusation too. This is not my point. This is my main point. My main point that this is not about pastoral compensation. This is about congregational obligation. This is answering that question. Is it just important that I give, even if I give somewhere else, to an organization that's digging wells in Africa or feeding the hungry here or adoption agencies here? All of those are good and godly things. But I think in answering the question, is that where I should be giving at the expense of giving to my local congregation? I would say uh, I would say no. I think your primary giving should be to the local church. Can you give to those things too? Yes, absolutely. But your primary giving should be to the local church. That it should not be a substitute for giving to your local church. So those are a couple of, just to drive home this idea that as Christians, we are to be a part of a congregation and a part of a church. And as part of being a part of a spirit-filled, Christ-centered community, we're devoted. We're devoted to the scriptures. We're devoted to one another in fellowship. And that we're devoted to, to giving and to generosity, too. So here's a couple of principles. A couple of principles on giving. Here's first and foremost. Giving should be done secretly. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So do not let your left hand know what your, what your right hand is doing. So giving should be done uh, without ostentation, without uh, blowing the horns in the streets and announcing it uh, to everyone. That your giving should be done in secret. And this really, if you think about it, was Ananias and Sapphira's essential sin, right? They, they were announcing their giving. And being deceptive with the amount. They wanted to appear as though they were more generous than they, than they really were. So our giving should be done in secret. Our giving should be done consistently or regularly. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. Paul encourages the church at Corinth to weekly, on the Lord's day, set aside something. And in this case, it was for a special offering that he was going to take back to Jerusalem to help the poor and needy there. But he kind of established a little bit of a pattern there. Make it regularly when you gather together on the Lord's day. Which will be the subject of next week. We're going to talk on the Lord's day next week. Um, but he said, set aside, make sure you disciplinely do, you do that regularly and consistently. And that you do it freely. That you do it um, freely. And if I could read a couple of verses here from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You could say this or, or liberally. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. So this should be done freely. There's no, there's no coercion uh, to giving in the, the early church. This should be done freely. And then lastly, it should be done 
cheerfully. As the next verse says, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So give secretly, give consistently, and give uh, cheerfully. A couple of other little things that kind of fit into a lot of, uh, in one of those four categories here. And related to the last one there, cheerfully, your willingness to give enthusiastically is more important than the amount that you give. If you give to others in need, they will in turn help you when you are in need. That's Paul's point here in the last verse I read. Each person should give as he or she is able to give, not should give um, what they what they are not able to give. Each person must make up his or her own mind in advance in how much they should give. We saw this in um, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. And our giving, of course, should be responsible. Doesn't mean it shouldn't be sacrificial. But it should be responsible. And ultimately, I'd say this, ultimately the Bible makes uh, the purpose of giving and generosity uh, pretty clear. And that is, it teaches us um, to fear the Lord God and put Him first in our lives. There's a couple of principles there for, for giving. Now, here, let me kind of apply this a little bit for, for us into three groups of people, three categories of people. First of all, the ones who are giving consistent. And if this is you, if you're giving regularly and consistently, um, uh, I would say thank you. Thank you for supporting this ministry. But more importantly, to commend you. To commend you for your um, following Christ in discipleship in this way. And so to encourage you to, to explore, maybe if this is, um, maybe to explore maybe what the next stage of your, your giving might be. I know maybe for some you got into the habit and it's kind of routine and there's no thought to it. But maybe you could say, I need to put a little more thought to this. Maybe I should pray over um, the offering that I'm giving. Or maybe you're kind of, maybe we need to make an uh, adjustment. I know Janet and I had to do that several years years ago where we were like, we need to kind of, I think we need to tweak the number that we need to, to, to give. And so to those who are giving consistently, thank you and I commend you on your discipleship. To those who maybe you give, but it's in kind of an inconsistent giving. You gave kind of occasionally or sporadically uh, or episodically. Um, I would encourage you, what would, it, what would it take for you to make the next step to make it consistent? Paul told the, the Corinthians, on the Lord's day, set aside that amount. Determine in your heart what the amount's going to be and set aside and give it on that, uh, that time. And just say, this is actually part of our worship. This is what we're going to do. And we're going to move from being uh, inconsistent givers to being consistent givers. And so to encourage you in that regard. Some of you may get paid quarterly. Some get paid monthly, biweekly, whatever. And whatever works for you in terms of what your you know, income is, give according to that. And that's fine. Just make it consistent and make it regular. 
And to the last group, maybe there's some non-existent. And so for whatever, uh, for whatever reason, you have never made the commitment to giving regularly or consistently uh, to your local church. And you profess Jesus as Lord and you've received every grace and spiritual blessing. My, um, my encouragement be, would be to you is, um, would you consider giving something? Or to ask yourself, what prevents you from giving? If you're not giving anything, the simple question is, why not? Why not? And then I'd encourage you to pray about it. Talk to God and say, God, I've never made this a part of my discipleship. The early church was, was characterized by their generosity. God, would you help me figure out uh, something that would work for me? And whatever that is. Doesn't have to be a large amount, but is, could it be something? And then work to being consistent with that. So if you're consistent, great. If you're, you're inconsistent, can we work to make that more consistent? And if you're not giving any, prayerfully talk to God about what it is that you could and should give primarily to uh, your local church. Because a spirit-filled, Christ-centered community is devoted to generosity. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you not only for the truth of your word in the way it announces good news to us, but also for the way it challenges us. It announces that we're, we're forgiven for leading lives that are self-centered and sinful and seeking to rule our lives our own way. And that you announce to us the good news that we could be forgiven for rebelling against you. But God, we thank you as well that your, your word is also uh, challenges us uh, to now live, uh, live rightly in the world. Challenges us for how we should live here in the churches and communities that you have set up for us to live in. And so, God, we pray that by your spirit and by what we we have in your word, that you would challenge us to be more devoted, more devoted to one another, more devoted to your word and devoted to having cheerful and generous hearts. God, we ask that you would do that and pray that you would do that in all of us. And it's in Christ's mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Would you stand for a closing benediction? And a couple of uh, reminders. Next Sunday is the first family feast um, of the kind of ministry year. And it's a barbecue 
theme. And so anything related to like barbecue, barbecue sauce, or barbecue side dishes, if you have any questions, just talk to Janet. And, um, and also a reminder that the, the offering box is in the back. And with that, let's hear this closing benediction uh, this morning. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we share in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as we go. Thank you.